I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at consminds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 24, we read Coming Apart by Charles Murray from 2012. Charles Murray was born in 1943 in the small town of Newton, Iowa. His father was an executive for the Maytag Corporation, which was the largest employer in the area. This sense of community and trust found in small towns like Newton has been a prevalent theme in Murray's books. Murray credits the SAT test with helping him get out of Newton and into Harvard University. He said, ever since, I've seen the SAT as the friend of the little guy. Following his graduation in 1965, he joined the Peace Corps and assisted villagers in the Thailand countryside. After two years with the Corps, Murray remained in Thailand for several years working for social research firms. This work in Thailand informed Murray's doctoral dissertation in political science at MIT, where he received his Ph.D., During his time in Thai villages, he observed that governments often do not understand the priorities of their citizens. After completing his Ph.D., Murray went to work in Washington, D.C. for the American Institutes for Research. There, Murray evaluated government programs in the areas of welfare, public education, criminal justice, and the prevention of family breakdown. He left to join the Manhattan Institute, where he published his first heralded book called Losing Ground, American Social Policy from 1950 to 1980. The book argues that welfare policies advanced under Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society often worsened rather than improved the condition of the poor. In 1990, he joined the American Enterprise Institute as a resident scholar. In 1994, in collaboration with Harvard psychology professor Richard Herrnstein, Murray published his best-known book, The Bell Curve. The authors considered whether a main cause for a range of social problems might be distribution of IQ rather than family structure, parental income, education, or other factors commonly cited by researchers. Critics call the book racist, though multiple studies have since vindicated his work. The controversy continues to follow Murray to the present day. In 2012, Murray published Coming Apart, the State of White America from 1960 to 2010. That's the focus of today's podcast. Presently, Murray serves as the F.A. Hayek Emeritus Chair in Cultural Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Murray is married with four grown children and lives with his wife in a rural town in Maryland. So I think the focus of coming apart is to explain how and why a new upper class, as Murray calls it, has emerged in America, how white America has sorted itself by class in ways that didn't really exist even in the 1960s. And he focuses on white America mostly to make a clearer point about how society has seen the emergence of a new upper class and a new lower class without getting into the the differences in, in uh, racial equality and so forth. Yeah. I think it, I think a lot of it could apply to all of America, but I I thought his, his focus on, you know, excluding the causes, you know, excluding factors caused by racism or by more racism or less racism really gives us a, a, lets us hone in on a, a problem that affects everybody, but is, you know, probably better examined just by looking at one subset. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and he doesn't want to get into, like you say, the questions of race and, and, and all that. Instead, he wants to make this more unique point, which is that he, he believes the crux of this phenomenon of the coming apart, the separating of, of classes, more related to cognitive ability. That is, you know, IQ and talent overall. So he introduces us to this idea of the new upper class, as he calls it, the cognitive elite. And these are the cognitive elite he calls the people who run the economic, political, and cultural institutions in America. And the more narrow elite, he says, are sort of like the professions, you know, lawyers, judges, journalists, columnists, top corporate executives, movie producers, directors, senior government officials. These types of groups that come together in what he calls the new upper class, which is, as he defines it, the most successful 5% working in the professions and managerial positions. I thought that was an interesting way of defining it. And it's more, it's, it's not, I think we often, when talking about class, we're talking about how much money a person makes, but there's more to it than that. And, you know, like including the top 5% of journalists and columnists in with the top 5% of corporate executives, the CEOs are making a lot more money than the journalists, Mm -hmm. but the journalists, I mean, have probably more influence on tastes on, on, on political ideas. Um, so I think they're they're part of a an intellectual elite. I mean, not to say that they're always the smartest folks, but although I think that's part of his thesis, but they're they're definitely they carry a lot of weight in intellectual circles and you know influence the way people live, even if people don't realize it. Just you know, if if, the, if all the top writers in America are talking about things in a certain way, that does kind of intellectually trickle down to everybody else, you know. Yeah, they, they have influence on, let's say, the direction of the country. And you could think of senior government officials, which he names, and they don't make tons of money relative to corporate executives or whatever, but they have a lot of influence. But mm-hmm. All right, so he gets us started by describing kind of what society was like in the 19, even as late as the 1960s. He says affluence in 1963 meant that he had enough money to afford some somewhat higher standard of living than other people, but you didn't have a markedly different lifestyle. So there was not much difference between the lifestyle of a highly influential attorney or senior executive, let's say, and the people several rungs down the ladder. Partially this is because many of the successful people in the sixties grew up, actually grew up themselves in working class families. And so you'd have a senior executive, a GM, but you know, he grew up in a Midwestern town and you know, just did well in the company and moved his way up. And his friends were still, you know, at different levels, may not be a vice president. and Maybe he married his secretary or something like that. And so even as late as the 60s, Murray says there there wasn't enough people that had college educations or, were, you know, far ahead to form a, what he called a critical mass of people with the distinctive tastes and preferences fostered by education. Right. So he was, I mean, he, he was getting at these people, there was a there was an upper class in those days, like there is in every time. But they didn't they didn't share anything really, except the fact that they were at the top of their companies. They made more money. There wasn't a universal taste of upper classness. There weren't universal values of an upper class that differed from the lower class. I think that they were just regular folks that had more money. So some of them were mm-hmm. Republicans, some were Democrats, some were liberal, conservative. You know. It was all over the place. They just happened to 
you know, do better at their jobs. And so their tastes are generally the same, you know, they mm-hmm. more or less go to the same restaurants, more or less watch the same movies. You know, of course there wasn't the, the spectrum of, uh, choices that we have today. You know, they shop at the same grocery stores and, you know, maybe they'd be driving the Mercedes instead of the, the Ford or something, but their lives were basically the same as, as the working class folks. But what Murray's going to say here, and I think you and I very much, uh, have identified, um, in our own lives, but is, uh, this new upper, what he calls the new upper class culture, which is actually pretty different from, from how, you know, working class people live. So he gives examples of basically like, you know, they're more likely to drive foreign cars, you know, to drive the, the Volvo, <laughs> you know, the, as parents, uh, they're older before they have kids. This is definitely true. Like I'm by far the youngest dad on, on my, uh, son's baseball teams. There's, uh, far fewer who are obese in America. It's like a third of Americans are obese, but among the new upper, upper class culture, there's most people are pretty fit and healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're the gym if, and whatnot, yeah. Yeah. Go to the gym and they're more likely to drink wine or boutique beers. Uh, they don't smoke. They stay away from fast food and think you McDonald's is a complete abomination. You know, they're more likely to be following whatever exotic diet in fad. They're Mm -hmm. pretty well informed. Unlike a lot of folks, you know, they read newspapers every day. They read the New York times or the wall street journal. They listen to national public radio, NPR. They listen to podcasts. Yeah. (laughs) Hello listeners. (laughs) They they watch much less TV. Do you know that the average American household watches 35 hours per week of TV? That just blows my freaking mind. I don't know where you find the time. <laughs> uh, and if they do, if the new upper class does watch TV, it's probably just like one, you know, hit series like Breaking Bad or mm-hmm. or The Wire or something like that. Uh, Game of Thrones, uh, which I've never seen. I'm calling myself out here. Uh, but they're not watching game shows. They're not watching soap operas. They're not watching Home Shopping Network. You know, uh, they're not watching Oprah. They frequent bars that do not have pool tables. Yeah. <laughs> they probably don't watch a ton of sports. And if they do watch sports, it's it's probably just, you know, they're one team. Like I watch the Nats or whatever, uh, the Nationals. But they're probably unlikely to sit down on on Saturday morning and or Sunday morning and watch football the entire day. And they go on more exotic vacations. And we don't necessarily mean more expensive. It's just more, rather than going to Disney World, they're more likely to go hiking in the Chilean Andes or something, something yeah. exotic like that. Mm-hmm. It's 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 interesting. Yeah, I mean, you're, the things you're talking about, I mean, are things I see from people I know. And it's It still seems weird to me sometimes, although some of the stuff like you're talking about, I, I also do. I drink fancy beers sometimes, you know, I can afford it. And it's strange. I mean, there's still that echo of the older upper class and guys like Warren Buffett, who famously lives in the same house in Omaha and he's lived in for 50 years or whatever, even though he's one of the richest guys in the world. And, you know, I mean, I remember uh, the speaker of our Pennsylvania house of representatives lived in my neighborhood and he lived in a house just like my parents' house. You know, he was, we used to run into him at the supermarket, you know, (laughs) you know, buying the same stuff on sale that my parents were buying. So that's, that still happens, but it's increasingly rare. I think people, they get a taste for that power. They, they feel like it's like assimilating into a new society, which mm-hmm. is definitely not 
there was always subgroups of society, but it usually had more in the past to do with your geography, maybe your race. Now it's really that well, I've I've moved up to this better job now. I'm at I'm at kind of in a different cl- group, a different subset of society than my own family or the people I grew up with. And it's, mm-hmm. it's very strange. Or or you didn't grow up with them. I mean, I think that's the point he's about to, he's right. going to make later is uh, you were born into the new culture, and so it seems completely normal to you. So he talks also about raising children for the new upper class is very different. And I see this clear as clear as dawn. I mean, new upper class children are, he says, the object of intense planning from pregnancy. <laughs> yeah. uh, I can't help but fall into this myself. But, uh, you know, helicopter parents, uh, or lawnmower parents, This is these are all terms that are coined, you know, based on new upper class because most of the folks in the lower class or working class, they don't obsess over which college their kids are going to get into, you know, whether it's going to be Harvard versus, you know, state U. It's basically like, yeah, we want you to get into the state university because we love the football team. Yeah, you don't, that's it's, okay. You, you know, know it's a, you. they want you to get a degree. It's, you know, a degree is a degree. It's better, you know, maybe than, than what they had or their parents had. It's also the same, like, when you talk about helicopter parents, you don't have, I think it's a very upper class thing of, like, follow your kids around all these various activities, you know, got the music, the sports, you know, these social groups. And I think yep. part of that's having more time, you know, or more money to enroll them in all these things. I think, you know, the lower class parents, maybe they're tired. <laughs> they're not going to follow the kid around to three different sports at the same time, you know, and enroll, you know, it's like hockey's expensive. You know, we can't do that and basketball and, you know, and baseball and soccer. You know? yeah. It's a huge investment of money, but also just the time that if you, if you do work on a, on a factory floor or in the building trades, you know, you're beat at the end of the day in a, in a different way than, you know, a lawyer or a writer is, is tired. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we're tired. We work hard, but it's a different kind of tired when you're up on the scaffold. Yeah. Body tired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that, I think that part is part of a place and even beyond the social, you know, keeping up with the Joneses that we see, you know, mm-hmm. that makes us want to help. My kid does this, my kid does that, you know, but I think for a lot of folks, it's not even a consideration. So this is how he sets the table, basically, mm-hmm. like there's this new culture that's been created. And so now he's going to go through the rest of the book is telling us uh, why and how that has really come to pass. So he starts with the increasing value of brains, like a higher tech economy reco- rewards cognitive ability. Uh, this, you know, cognitive ability means ability to make complex decisions and in dynamic work environments, you know, you have the interpersonal skills and I always say to my wife, like, I'm so, so grateful that we were born in this era of the world because, you know, I, I could have been a decent farmer, but I would have hated it. You know, <laughs> it's a lot. Of I work. actually get paid based on what I know and what I can do cognitively, you know, as opposed to like what I can build or, you know, what I can plow. And that's just huge. I mean, we're super lucky yeah. to have that, that opportunity here in in our day and age. And so he says the, there's a widening distribution in, in income, you know, managerial and professional occupations earn a lot more now in 2010 than, than they did in 1960. And this is because, because of the higher tech economy, because cognitive ability is required. And so uh, ability to manage or work in professions actually is 
more valuable than it used to be. So he says the poor didn't get poor, mostly because of government transfers, government benefits, but they haven't improved much. And this is something you and I have heard and read every single day. I mean, this is the, the New York Times exists to basically tell us this. But, <laughs> uh, but real, real family income for families in the middle class was, has been flat from 1970 to 2010. Most of the benefits of economic growth, we've had huge economic growth in that time, but most of the benefits have gone to the people in the upper half. And that increase is most dramatically enjoyed at the very top of the distribution. Again, we've heard this millions of times, but all right. So the new upper class is mostly in the top 5%, as we talked about, how, how do they, how does this happen? So he, he introduces this idea that I think is, was super, super interesting at the time that he, he talked about it. And, and now has since been written about, um, in a million other places, but what he calls the college sorting machine. So because every, almost everyone in the new upper class has finished college, cognitive stratification among colleges, you know, separates smarter kids. So getting to college in the first place is sort of a sign that, that, uh, you're a little bit smarter. And then depending on what school you go to, it's even more so he says upper middle-class children dominate the population of elite schools because their parents now produce a disproportionate number of the smartest children. And the college sorting machine helps bring these high IQ young men and women together. So what happens? Well, you're, you're one of the smarter kids. You're going to go to college. So when you get to college, that's where you're going to meet your husband. That's where you're going to meet your wife anymore, you know, and, or, mm -hmm. and now you're going to start rolling in different circles. So where, you know, in a, in a previous time in the sixties, you know, you were, you were an executive at the, the insurance company, but there wasn't so many, you know, executive, you probably didn't even go to college. And if you did, there wasn't enough people who went to college to make much of a difference. So you're just sort of hanging out with people, you know, in, in the company or in the neighborhood. And so you're still rolling with friends and associates and probably maybe even your spouse who wasn't necessarily at the, at the same level of cognitive ability, let's say, but because of college, it's, it's that first step of sorting. Like where, where do you meet your spouse? Well, probably among friends. And as you move along, you know, if you go to college, it's probably gonna be there. Once you graduate college is, you know, it's going to be a friend of a friend who went to college or sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, and then graduate school even further stratifies that. And, and then yep. the, the increasing requirements of credentials at, at work means that a lot of times you're in a job where most of the people you work with have to have a degree. Yeah. Whether you really need yeah. it or not, that's, that's the job requirement. And, you know, the government's as bad about this as anybody else. And so, yeah, I mean, where do you meet people if you're an adult, you know, it's at school, it's work, you're, or a friend group. And at that point you're, you're all dealing with the same folks. And it's, it's different than anything that's ever existed. And people are much less likely to marry their cards called sweetheart at this level because they're focused on going to college. Like I'm not, I'm not going to get married and have a kid when I'm 19 years old because I still need to go to college. You know, I need to start my career. And this gets back to parents being much older. I mean, mm -hmm. I, my oldest is 11 years old and I'm 39, which puts me basically <laughs> in terms of people around here that I associate with. I mean, most people, if they have an 11 year old, they're in their fifties for dads. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My old, my oldest, we're the same age. My oldest is eight. And, uh, even, you know, though, even that sometimes is even beyond class too. I mean, because a lot of my cousins didn't have kids till late and they're not, I mean, some of them went to college and some didn't. So, I mean, I, I think that's part of that's just people are taking a longer time to figure things out, but 
definitely among like the people I went to law school with. My kid was one of the older ones, you know, in, in the kids of my my friend group from those days. Mm-hmm. But if you you know, if you walk around the streets of the neighborhood, plenty of parents are younger than me who have kids our age. So it's, you know, it it's weird to see. You know, it's a it's kind of a, a culture shock, even though it's a culture that I think I'm pretty well insinuated into at this point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I found it uh, really interesting when I first <laughs> it first occurred to me. Now, now it's normal. I know that uh, that I'm going to be younger than all the the baseball or basketball dads, but but yeah, it's kind of funny. A lot of gray hairs, a lot of gray beards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, so he introduces to us to this concept of homogamy. And what he means is the interbreeding of individuals with like characteristics. He says, educational homogamy occurs when parents with similar educations have children. Cognitive homogamy occurs when parents with similar cognitive abilities have children. And what happens, and this is really what makes this book controversial, is what he's saying is that smart people have smart kids. And what's happening is a highly disproportionate number of exceptionally able children in the next generation will come from parents in the upper middle class and more specifically from parents who are already part of the broad elite. In other words, like why are most of the applicants, uh, competitive applicants to Yale, why are they from the upper middle class? Well, because they actually are the smarter kids. They're the ones who are the most competitive, not only because they have these money advantages, you know, they went to the prep school, but also they're just cognitively more capable. And why? Because their parents are, and their parents who used to just, you know, marry someone in the neighborhood or high school sweetheart was now that we have this college sorting system and graduate school sorting system. So you go to law school and you graduate and you're probably going to associate with a lot of lawyers. And so you also marry a smart lawyer and then your kids are more likely to be intelligent. And so that's pretty controversial these days, the question of IQ, because it really creates this new upper class, you know, this new class of cognitively able people to, to do hard jobs or to make more money. I, th- I think he probably puts a little too much weight on IQ, but that's, that's been his thesis since, you know, since before the bell curve, you know, that's his life's work. I think, I think there are, I think that's part of it. I mean, obviously traits are inherited of all sorts, you know, that's why my kids are not tall. But hopefully they'll be smart. You know, that's that's my genes and my wife's genes. But I think there's also a lot of stuff about um, being brought up in an upper middle class household gives you certain advantages. You know, not just what school you go to, but how involved your parents are. You know, especially coming from a two parent household gives you gives you a better chance of success. Whatever your parents' IQ is, just I think because you're they're keeping an eye on you, they're more likely to make you do your homework, make you go to school. Cause it, you know, it's easier to parent when there's two of you around mm-hmm. and you're both committed to the same result. So I, I, as I was reading this, I mean, I, it, IQ exists for sure. And it is heritable for sure. But, um, I think he kind of underplays the nurture aspects a bit. Yeah. So, We'll have to read another book that has a contrary opinion on, on this yeah. uh, type of thing. But I think, uh, you know, I, I follow this stuff pretty closely. And I think that, uh, you know, the two biggest predictors of sort of life happiness and outcomes and income and everything is, 
uh, IQ and conscientiousness, conscientious mean, meaning like how likely are you to get to work on time, to, mm-hmm. you know, hustle, to work hard, to, you know, be dependable, to, you know, plan ahead, you know, all those sorts of things. And yeah, and I think conscientiousness is, is in part something that's taught too. So that I think that's more of the nurture aspect. I mean, some of it's just how people are. You know, mm-hmm. two people coming out of the same household, one can be hardworking and one can be lazy. I mean, you, we see this, you know, we see a lot of people who are successful and they have a ne'er-do-well brother. You know, that's, that happens. But I think, I think there's, there's still some of that that can be taught. All right. So back to his thesis, he says basically like cognitive ability will dictate your ability to succeed in certain careers. So the, the average IQ in America is 100 uh, and he says most, not just him, I, I cross-referenced this in a, a couple of different sites, uh, a couple of different uh, sources. The, the average is 100 in America, and then the average for a high school graduate is 105. It's, that is remarkable. That yeah. The, the average of a high school graduate is above average for America. So, you know, uh, I read in another source, if you have an IQ of 75, you have about a 50-50 chance of reaching ninth grade. That's pretty mm-hmm. tough. And there's then, not, so, yeah, and there's not a lot you can do without a high school degree anymore. Right, exactly. So the average the average IQ for a college graduate is 115. It'd be one standard deviation above the mean. And then, you know, for, if you, for PhDs or medical doctors or whatever, it's about 125. So that would be almost two standard deviations from the mean. So it just really jumps out at you that only about 25, 30% of the population is really suited for college based on this. Of course, that is extremely, you know, controversial, mm-hmm. but it's a point that he's making here. All right. So let's just move on though. So they start to segregate and they, uh, by once they get married or once they finish their college education, the new upper class moves to elite neighborhoods or what he calls super zips which is now part of the American vernacular. And so he gives the example of the super zips being like New York and San Francisco and the DC area, Austin, Texas, and compares that to where he grew up in Newton, Iowa, where the Maytag corporation had its headquarters for years. But he says they increased, had increasing difficulty attracting executive talent because in 1960, most executives grew up in Midwestern towns themselves, and so they had no problem moving to Newton. But by 2000, you know, they had to, it's kind of a, a national search for, for executive talent to hire. And there just was not a lot of executives who were willing to move to Iowa, period, and much less a small, tiny town like Newton. That so seems- they had to close. That seems crazy to me. Move. That sounds like a dream job. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, for me, but then I guess people wanna people at that level want to live among other people at that level, which is what he's talking about. And, you know, the, the sort of assortative mating, assortative living. But boy, I mean, imagine being a CEO and you live in this small town in Iowa, you live like a king. <laughs> you don't need that much to get by. I don't know. It sounds great to me, but uh, well, yeah. clearly they have trouble. So, I mean, yeah, part of me agrees with you, but I think that his point would be that it's not just that they feel like they're too good for Newton. It's that they're going to go to Newton and the people there are not going to be like them. You know, they're yeah. going to have these, these tastes, you know, 
the boutique beers, you know, the, mm-hmm. you know, specialty uh, bookstores and yeah. you know, all these different, and whatnot, yeah, yeah, Broadway shows and bars without pool tables. And you're talking about a lifestyle that they've grew, grown up with or, you know, been a part of. And now they're going to move to Newton, which is this tiny town where, you know, people ride four wheelers and go fishing, you know, like that mm-hmm. to me sounds, well, the four wheeler part sounds fun, but the, you know, but being separated from people who are like you, like, what are you going to talk about with people? You know what I mean? Or who, who are your friends going to be? I, I think yeah. that's more like, it's like, Hey, I don't, this, this isn't really my crowd. I'm sure they're really great people, but what am I going to do here? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And if you're, if you're talking about CEOs being drawn from a class that's increasingly generationally upper middle class, yeah, they wouldn't even know how to talk to a guy about, you know, deer hunting or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, it's like not even connecting on a, on a basic level of familiarity. Oh, yeah. NASCAR racing or whatever. You yeah, don't, you don't like, know anything about it. Don't know about it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what's a super zip? Super zips are zip codes in the 95th through the 99th percentile of income. Most people in super zips are affluent and well-educated. They are substantially wider and more Asian compared to the rest of America. And this is the elite bubble that he calls the home of the new upper class. And I'd be interested to hear yours. I now live in a, uh, I live in a suburb of DC that is a super zip in the 96th percentile. But let's compare that with where I grew up. I grew up in a working class neighborhood that suit that zip code is in the 37th percentile <laughs> yeah so i'm i'm i am exactly what he's talking about you know you pick mm-hmm. up you go to college and then you move to the super zip well, it's funny i'm just looking at mine now or where i live now is in the 82nd percentile and where i grew up is in the 39th percentile but which what's funny is i i live three miles from where i grew up so you don't have to go far <laughs> so <you do. laughs> but yeah it's definitely an up and out kind of thing and it, it's uh yeah there's a there's a brain drain going on not just globally but you know right here in our local communities as people kind of sort themselves out yeah. i didn't realize how stark that difference would be until just now it's it's crazy it's fascinating so he has what he calls the how thick is your bubble test that you and i both took you know without reading all the questions i'll, I'll just give listeners a sense for the this is a quiz to tell you how how entrapped in the the new upper class bubble you are. So like the first question is like, have you ever lived for at least a year in an American neighborhood in which the majority of your 50 nearest neighbors probably did not have college degrees? I did. But mm-hmm. number two, you know, did you grow up in a family in which the chief breadwinner was not in a managerial job or high prestige profession? I also was yes yeah. to that. Have you ever lived for at least a year in an American community under 50,000 population that's not part of a metropolitan area and is not where you went to college? Have you ever lived for at least a year in in the U.S. at a family income that was close to or below the poverty line? He says graduate school doesn't count. <laughs> right. You know, being unemployed and living with your parents, that doesn't count either. <laughs> right. Like actually uh, making it on a low income. Yeah. Yeah. That- and I have. I mean, my wife and mm-hmm. I totally have. All right, and and my dad was unemployed for a little while when I was younger. Five, have you ever worked walked on a factory floor? Six, have you ever held a job that caused something to hurt at the end of the day? I totally did. Um, yeah, I could I could get that one because he said feet count. <laughs> yeah, I did have a lot of jobs where he had to stand all day. Yeah, standing up. I don't didn't have really many other ones where my back was hurting. Of course, I was younger then too. If I did them now, I would think my back would hurt. But yeah, the, these are these are really interesting questions that get to. Uh, they definitely have a feel of it. And as you're answering them, say, yeah, that 
that makes sense that because I know people who fall on both sides of the the question and you know where they are in life says a lot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Have you ever had a close friend who could seldom get better than C's in high school, even if he or she tried hard? I asked my wife that question and she was said no. And I said, I, I couldn't believe it. Really? I had plenty of friends who struggled, you know, to, to do well in high school. It was really eye opening to, I don't know, to realize that, you know, folks are very different. You know, have mm-hmm. you or your spouse ever bought a pickup truck? Yes, I, did. I had a pickup truck. I wish I had. I uh, not. When I was in high school, now I don't because our garage doesn't fit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Fit one, we don't have a place to park it. But. And then there's some, some questions on media and popular culture. It asks you a bunch of movies. Have you seen these? These are all from 2010, so it's a little bit dated. But have you seen Iron Man two or Despicable Me or Tron or Little Fockers? <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> have you ever watched big? You watch regularly Big Bang Theory or Grey's Anatomy or Lost or Desperate Housewives or The Office? That's the one that got me. I definitely yeah. watched The Office. <laughs> Uh, have you ever watched Oprah or Dr. Phil or Judge Judy all the way through? I, I don't think I have. She said no. And I like, yeah. are you kidding me? I watched Oprah. <laughs> I don't think I, I have. <laughs> I mean, I haven't in 20 years, but I was younger. So so my, I, my score, and I'm really interested to hear yours. My score was a 60. And 60 says, he says, qualifies me as a first generation upper middle class person with working class parents. If you grew up in a working class neighborhood, you're going to have a high score. Even if you are now an investment banker living on Park Avenue, your present life may be completely encased in the bubble, but you brought a lot of experience into the bubble that will always be a part of your understanding of America. That was, that's pretty much me to a T. How about you? We're pretty close. I had a 50, which kind of qualifies me for the same group. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I could also the ranges overlap too. So I could also be a first generation upper middle-class person with middle-class parents, which I'm not sure. It's hard to say which side of the line folks fell on, but I think mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. I mean, with both of them, a lot of the points of, of like non bubbleness that we're bringing into it come from stuff we did when we were young. Yeah. You know, yeah, if you just look at now. snapshot of how we live now, you know, since law school. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty bubblicious. Mm hmm. Yeah, and uh, my wife, I haven't had her take this, take the test, thinking that she'd probably get somewhere similar, not even close. So her <laughs> score was a 27, which qualifies her a second-generation upper-middle-class person who has made a point of getting out a lot, <laughs> uh, which is pretty funny because we're going through these questions together, and she just kept saying no to everything. And, I, man, it was really eye-opening, even in my own family. You know, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, her... Not only did her parents go to college, but her grandparents went to college and she, she's like fourth generation female to go to college. And my mom didn't go to college and certainly none of my grandparents did. So yeah, I think my wife would fall along the same lines actually. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. You discover a lot about it. The questions were interesting. They made you think, you know, like who do I know anymore? You know, let's talk about like people who didn't do well in high school. Like I knew some of those kids growing up, but by the time I was in high school, we didn't hang out that much, you know, cause we were going to different schools. And so it's even at that age, you start to segregate yourself. Yeah. You know, either cause your high school has tracks or, or because like in a, in a bigger school district, there's magnet schools that are kind of pulling out smart kids from all the different neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. It's, it was a little eye opening for sure. 
Yeah. And so it causes us to ask ourselves like our, what about our kids Are our kids like totally living in a bubble and how many, how many of these could our kids answer yes to hardly any. So all of a sudden I'm, I'm saying to my wife, like, we need to get these kids out. <laughs> uh, they're in the bubble. Like, I mean, I try to do what I can to make their lives a little bit different. Like I make my boys mow the lawn and stuff like that, or, you know, none of their friends have to mow the lawn. Are you kidding me? You know, they, <laughs> they have some high priced uh, crew come do it. Oh yeah. I can't wait till my kids are old enough to mow the lawn. Then I can stop. <laughs> <clears throat> but I, 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 the point of all this, I think is Murray's pointing out that how can an upper class, a governing class that's so separated from the other classes in America, how can they govern a whole country? How can they understand what other people want who aren't like them? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? If these, if yeah. this is this managerial professional class is in both parties, the, the kind of folks who are in charge, either in Congress or in the staffs or in, you know, in, in the executive branch, how can they look at the rest of America and say, Oh yeah, I know what these people are. I know what they need. I know what they want. I know what'll make their lives better. If they are so unfamiliar with those people's lives that they can't even really can't even begin to say what those folks want, even though. Yeah. And we have journalists who feel like they understand it because they go on a trip from, they go from New York and visit a small town for a week and they've got it figured out so they can write their long form article or whatever about Mm -hmm. how they know exactly what's going on. Hang out in a few diners in Iowa and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you've got your finger on the pulse of America, but it's, I mean, I think that helps. At least they're trying to talk to people, but they're still all from the same background. They're still all, when they get back to DC or New York, they're bouncing ideas off the same people and coming at it with the same class prejudices. It's a real problem. And I think it's, Mm -hmm. again, one that we've always been, we've always had upper class leadership. I mean, that's the nature of an upper class, Um, but it's, it's different. I think for the first time in American history that they're so different, it's more reminiscent of an old, old fashioned aristocracy. You know, the sort of thing Mm -hmm. that Tocqueville said we were so lucky not to have. Right. Right. So it, it makes you ask the question like, well, should we do something about it? Is there something we can do about it? And, he answers that question in chapter five and basically like this, the college sorting mas- machine is so efficient that it really, there's not a whole lot you can do. And, and, you know, you could, you could move ahead with, you know, painful taxes or something like that, but it's not really going to change the cultures, you know, the, where you're ha- you're having completely different lifestyles and completely different cultures and mm-hmm. ways of being. And those folks that get sorted by the machine, you know, if you, you come from a lower class family and you're just a really smart kid or something like that. And so you go to college, well, now, now you're in the system. And so, you know, you're, you're going to be a part of it. And like, basically like, kind of like you and I, you know, we are, we had hardworking parents and got lucky that we could do pretty well in school and go to college and then just become part of the sorted system. And it's not like I return back to my, my old community anymore. I mean, heck, even my own parents, they don't even live in there, the community we grew up in because now they're doing quite well. <laughs> you know, we were pretty working class when I was growing up, but they've gotten ahead and now they live in a, <laughs> a sorted area. Yeah, and I, I think we, we've internalized this too as a sort of, I mean, we call it meritocracy, right? The, you know, the people who do best in school, get ahead 
but it's 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 weird to call it merit in a way because i mean being being blessed with intelligence is not that different from being blessed with uh, strength or height or you know good looks i mean it, it's not mm-hmm. something any of us yeah. earned i mean we we may have worked harder in school and that's important that you know because that's the only way your intelligence can get recognized for the most part but it's it's not um it's not merit in the same way as like industriousness is merit, which he'll, he'll Murray gets into industriousness and honesty and other virtues later in the book. It's weird that we call this meritocracy when really it's just sorting by certain innate quality. It's just a different innate quality than has mattered much before, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe among primitive man, strength was the best thing because, you know, having brains didn't help too much on, you know, on the Savannah when you're, hunting gazelles but right right now it's you know in in this increasingly technical economy like you say i I think we're we're sorting ourselves the same way that uh baseball players sort themselves for the ability to hit the curveball right there's some practice but a lot of it's just what you're born with Mm -hmm. so let's hit a couple of those virtues here at the end that you're talking about the, what he calls the founding virtues of industriousness honesty marriage religion he uses these as kind of a jumping off point to show how different the, the the two cultures are now because he talks about industriousness industriousness which is basically he says the bone deep american assumption that life has to be spent getting ahead through hard work making a better life for oneself and one's children and now he says basically what's changed is the folks in in the lower class towns or whatever they it's not just it's not just that the high paying union union jobs have become scarce but it's also because the people in these towns, they are, they're just working fewer hours. It's not so much. And sometimes it's not that they're having a hard time getting a job, especially right now where it's, we're at, you know, 3% unemployment, three and a half percent. You know, there's jobs to be had. Mm-hmm. He says, there's no evidence that man, men without jobs in the two thousands before the 2008 recession hit, were trying hard to find work, but failing. The simpler explanation is that white males of the two thousands were less industrious. So he, he thinks that uh, a new culture is set in where particularly men, in the white working class, in the new lower class, they just, they don't want to work. And he goes through and some, some more, uh, qualitative analysis of, uh, interviewing people, especially women in these towns. And they don't have a lot of nice things to say about the men. No, <laughs> their it, work ethic. It, it rang true too. I mean, I think part of his generations of the welfare state reinforcing the idea that you know, there's ways to get money besides work and there's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, you know, we used to say there's something wrong with it if you can do better, you know? Yeah. And, and then there's, I mean, maybe part of it is also sort of the dark side of the sexual revolution, you know, dark side of women. In yeah. The so Mary, why don't you tell us marriage was another one? Well, yeah. There, yeah. I mean, there's the other one too. I mean, they all tie together. So you get, I mean, the idea that more women are, Working, I think, maybe gives some men the idea that they don't have to now. In the same way that in the old days, a lot of women didn't have to work because the man was bringing home the check and it was all, you know, all fine. But yeah, at the same time, you've got these dudes who are not married to the women with whom they make children, and that's a decline. That I mean, a decline in all four of these virtues has mostly. Uh, they all used to be virtues that were shared across classes. Now in the period he studied since the, since 1960 marriage has declined the most among the poorer classes 
you know, industri- mm-hmm. industriousness is measured in at least, you know, as well as we can measure it, how many hours you work, you know, how often you are employed at all has declined way more among the poor. Mm-hmm. All of these things other than, I mean, religion has kind of declined against across both classes, but the other three, they're all showing this divergence, you know, and, and in losing these virtues, like what, well, what happens to you? You know I mean? Because he talks about the founding fathers believing, even though not, not many of them were serious, you know, fervid churchgoers themselves. You know I mean? We talk about Jefferson as a deist, you know, possibly even atheist Franklin, you know, he was a playboy. He doesn't talk much about going to church, but they all thought they all saw the value in it. They all saw that, you know, virtue is necessary to keep liberty around. And the reason we can be a free people is because we're a self-governing people. We govern ourselves through virtue. Mm-hmm. So what happens when the virtue goes away? Well, and I think we're seeing it in, in you know, as, as Murray describes it, we're seeing in a lot of the, the poorer neighborhoods, the, the not so super zips, as these virtues go away, people lose their liberty too, either because they become wards of the welfare system, you know, where you're just a serf to the state, you know, you don't, you're not making your own way or making your own choices or you end up in jail. And uh, that's one of the, I mean, one of the top, the virtues of honesty that he measures is, you know, criminality as a form of dishonesty. And you mm-hmm. know, just as, there's always been crime, but when you, uh, the people ending up in jail are mostly the poor folks. It, it shows, I mean, there's a theme we've talked about throughout these podcasts of virtue and liberty going together and Murray's studying it pretty closely what happens when the virtue goes away can you preserve liberty without it and uh, i think we're seeing we have seen for some years that it's it's not happening and people are sort of giving up both and leading lives of just you know day to day and you know maybe on welfare maybe in jail just not really building toward any kind of american dream the way their ancestors did Mm mm-hmm yeah, and his critique of the new upper class is basically like they don't preach what they practice. In other yes. words, like all of these virtues are actually alive and well in the lives of the new upper class. They do get married before they mm-hmm. have kids. You know, that in the in the new lower class, the out of wedlock births have just completely skyrocketed. Not just among minorities, but also among working class whites. And you know, cohabitation has has uh, skyrocketed. And he shows that you know cohabiting children of cohabiting parents do about as well as the children of single parents. And, but, mm-hmm. uh, but in the new upper class, you know, it's taboo to say something like, no, you really should get married and stay married before you, and for your kids, because actually in the new upper class, that's what they do. That's what they practice. And that's what, what really, drives me. Yeah. That's what drives me nuts about it because they know the secrets to success and they just don't have the courage of their convictions or, if you want to take a more cynical view, they're happy that the lower classes aren't following them because then there's a permanent underclass to employ at low wages. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think it's that well thought out, but it's that's the effect they're having when mm-hmm. they refuse. You know, I mean, I think upper class people, we talk about white privilege and whatnot nowadays. And I think a lot of them are like white liberals want to get rid of their privilege. Well, you can't. What you should do is use that privilege to promote good virtues and to set a proper example. You know, I mean, give, give people something to look up to and say, well, that guy's successful. What's he do? Well, he goes to work every day. Yeah, exactly. He's married to the mother of his kids. They live in a house together. They take care of it. You know, they, they go to church on Sunday. 
they're active in community organizations. You know, they're, they're building social capital. Make that example and then not be afraid to say, if you do this, you've got a better chance of getting where I am. Yeah. Don't, don't be afraid to be judgmental and say, no, you need to, you need to take care of her. You know, you need to take care of those kids. That's your responsibility. You know, you're that should be just drop it on, you know, so what makes this a conservative book too, is his Mm. critique of uh, government programs that just make it so easy for deadbeat dads to, to uh, father children and then just sort of keep floating along without taking any responsibility because, oh, the welfare will take care of it. You know, she'll get on welfare and that'll take care of the kids. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's men that are causing more of the problems here. One, one point he noted in labor force participation is where it's declined generally among poorer classes. And the one group in both classes that stayed consistently uh, participating in the labor force is married women. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, I think the moms are still working partly because a lot, you know, the dads married or unmarried, you know, or they're not doing it. And then the mom's the one who has these kids and said, well, somebody's got to support them. You know, I mean, I think a lot of it's fallen on the women to do both to, you know, take up Mm -hmm. the, take up the slack that a lot of these, you know, deadbeat dads are not carrying anymore. Yeah. I think that that part of that's just a loss of virtue. Whereas in, in the old days, you know, would say that it's a man's job to, you know, get out and earn, support the family. You know, that, that was part of what made you a man. Yeah. This quote really jumped out at me. He says the, he, he uses the, this, uh, example of a town called Fishtown, which is a real place in Pennsylvania. Apparently it's the a, people of Fish neighborhood in Philadelphia. Yeah. Ah, great. The people of Fishtown lamented the loss of high paying factory jobs but they did not say there were no jobs to be had anymore. They talked about men who just couldn't seem to cope with the process of getting and holding a job. Here's a quote. They'll live on welfare or any other income they got coming in. They don't want to work. <laughs> That's what makes this a conservative book. I know tons of people like this, uh, for sure. We, we have them in our own, uh, my own family, but, uh, or, mm-hmm. you know, my wife's family or whatever people who are, you know, just constantly like either out of work and, you know, kind of relying on a, a wife to cover things or a girlfriend. And then, uh, you know, they finally get another job and they, they bounce from one fast food place to another and, and can't seem to hold or keep a job. And this industriousness, you know, again, the critique of the new, new upper class, new upper class, they do this. They are industrious. They are conscientious. They go to work, they get there on time, they work hard, they try to get ahead, but unwilling to turn around and be judgmental and say, no, you should too. Now, instead, it's sort of like, well, you know, I don't want to be too judgmental. You know, he's having a hard time. And no, like it used to be that these virtues were, were set in stone. It's kind of like, hey, look, you need to get your act together. It's not okay that you're behaving this way. Yeah. And this is the mindset that leads to the left proposing things like universal basic income. Because I think they think that a lot of people are just incapable of success. Oh, great point. Great point. And it's, I think the old way was to say, look, here's the things. Not everyone has the same gifts, but if you follow these steps, you can make a good living in America. You know, people have said 90% of success is showing up. I forget who said that. It's a, it's like a cliche by now, but that is, I mean, when you work some jobs, like when I worked in retail, when I was in college and high school, you really see that. You see that so many people just don't show up for their shift and they eventually get fired. You know? Yeah. I mean, I've been laid off, but or call in sick so they can go to, go to the yeah. amusement park always out of sick days, even though they're in pretty good health, you know, <laughs> it's, I mean, I've, I've been laid off, but when you see it happen to somebody year after year, job after job, you, you know, there's something going on there. It's not that yeah. 
every employer he's ever worked for just fell on bad times. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. You see, and it's it's amazing how that's why that's why I, I want my children to get part time jobs when they're older because you learn a lot about life. You see yes. that a lot of people just don't work. A lot of people come in and do nothing all day, or they don't show up on time, or they don't do anything. It it's really eye opening because it mm-hmm. never it never occurred to me to just like not show up for my shift at Sears. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm on the schedule. I got to go. Yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, so we're way over time now. Yeah. I don't know if you have like two words in as final thoughts or. I think, uh, like you said, this is a conservative book because it, it gets it. It's, 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 it preaches the old American dream, which I think could still be alive and still is for a lot of people. And you see the people living these, these four virtues of, uh, industriousness, honesty, marriage, religion. I, th- I think you see that, um, you see that in the upper class. You also see it in immigrants who are oh, coming yeah. here. Yeah. And, you know, we, I mean, we always talk about, and we always see in communities, immigrants who work hard, you know, work 50, 60, 70 hours, because maybe it's because they have a more recent experience of actual real privation, of real persecution in many instances, and they're happy to be here. And they see the success that can be had in America. And, and they're not afraid to condemn the lazy among them or the dishonest among them or the, or those who just don't follow the rules that have made everybody else successful. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it still goes on and it still can go on and people can move classes. I mean, we'll see in every, in every generation, there's going to be people who are coming up and there will be some who fall who are falling down. Although I think that's more, that's usually more because of, it's harder to fall down than to fall up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think you know, Murray outlines some, really good guidelines for getting ahead and staying ahead in America while also pointing out the problem of a class that only is willing to perpetuate those virtues among their own and are disproportionately sharing in the success of America as a result. Yeah. Good stuff. All right, let's shut it down. Next time. We plan to break from our usual inquiry into the past by considering today's debate du jour between between uh, Sorab Amari and David French. By now, many of us have seen these two and their allies uh, battling it out on Twitter. Kyle follows this stuff closely. Do you have anything to add for a preview? Just it's it, it's echoing a lot of the themes that we've covered in this podcast. You know about about virtue and government's role in promoting it and on. A lot of it encapsulates a lot of what we've talked about, and uh, it'll be interesting to see that from a 2019 perspective as opposed to some of the older books we've looked at. So, looking forward to talking about that. Cool. Same here. All right. Catch us next time. Thanks.